Catechism and the Ten Commandments. Looking tonight at the final commandment, commandment 10, we have two Old Testament scriptures, one New Testament scripture. Exodus 20, of course, is the, uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And specifically, we're going to be looking at verse 17, which is the Tenth Commandment. So, before we look at God's Word, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word you've given to us, you revealed to us your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see your heart for us as we look at your word tonight. And may we receive your grace in the preaching of the word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. Our text tonight is verse 17. Here now the reading of God's holy word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Looking now at Psalm 131, Pew Bible, page 974. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, for the director of music of David, a psalm. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. 
The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And finally, tonight, looking at Philippians chapter 3. Pew Bible, page 1,828. Philippians 3. Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. As far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're also looking at Lord's Day 44 in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 56. Lord's Day 44. And uh, I'll read the questions, and if we could read the answers together, that would be great. Lord's Day 44, page 56, in the back of your green Psalter hymnals. What is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. But can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that the longer we live, the more we come to know our sinfulness, and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. That's the teaching of the catechism. Um, Back when I was younger than I am now, believe it or not, uh, I, uh, I had a favorite band called As Cities Burn. I think I've actually quoted some of their songs to you before. And uh, it's not a band that I would recommend you go listen to because they kind of do the, the yelly, screamy stuff. You probably wouldn't understand it. <laughs> but their first debut CD was titled Son, I loved you at your darkest. And uh, that always stuck with me as I was growing in my understanding of the gospel, growing in my understanding of um, God's heart for us. And I think it's important to, to talk about this in terms of what we're discussing tonight, the, uh, in, in the pursuit of continuing to grow, continuing to be sanctified, um, there can be a confusion about this. And that is that um, even as Christians, we can continue to use guilt as a motivator 
instead of grace. The son I loved you at your darkest is, is really the meaning of the, the parable of the prodigal son. What's being proclaimed there is, is that even in your darkest moments, even in the midst of your most selfish, self-centered, sinful moments, I loved you. And, and that really came to, to, to really be full orb for me when I, um, I went back some, some time ago recently and I read Psalm 139. Again, well, it's a beautiful psalm. Um, but what I realized is that what David is talking about here, that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, that there's not a place that God can go, that, that David can go, that God cannot see, that God cannot be present, right? And what I realized is a lot of my upbringing was, was picturing God, communicating God, talking about God in a way that that understanding, the understanding of knowing that God is all seen, that God, there's not a place that I can go where God cannot see, it was a frightening thing. It was the thing that was told to me is a guilt motivator. But that's not the way David is proclaiming it in Psalm 139. The way David is proclaiming it in Psalm 139 is, Son, I loved you at your darkest. Oh Lord, you've searched me. You know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your, high, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. The deepest darkness, the light, will become like night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. That God would plunge into the darkness for us. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You see what David is saying here? He's saying the reality that there's not a place that I can go where God isn't is not a judgment. It is a comfort. It's a comfort. And so as we consider the Ten Commandment, the commandment 
that opens up to us the reality that all the commandments are about the heart. Because really, that's what we're trying to do when we hide. We're trying to hide our hearts from God. Let us consider the words that David said in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts, my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And it's when we know that God's proclamation to us in Jesus Christ is, son, I loved you at your darkest, that we can move away from the motivator of guilt to the motivator of grace. It's when we know that God, even in our deepest, darkest, most horrible moments, loved us, was extending grace to us in Jesus Christ, that we can then begin to pursue the beginnings of righteousness and holiness in this life. So let's talk about that. And if you're really curi- curious sometime, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you listen to one of those As Cities Burn songs. As long as you don't judge me, okay? Our theme tonight, the law of God humbles us. And leads us to Christ. We've got four points tonight. The first is the heart of the matter. The second is the small beginning. Beginning is one of those words that you don't think is hard to spell until you start writing it on a whiteboard. The third one is the constant growth. And the fourth one is the certain goal. I'm going to focus mostly upon um, Philippians 3 as we talk about this. Because I think what Paul lays out for us there encapsulates the heart of the gospel in the pursuit of holiness um, and and the attitude that we should have about it, okay? Um, The first question, what is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment, is that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. That's why this is the heart of the matter. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. Now, somebody may come to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44, question and answer 113, and say, what does that have to do with coveting? What does that have to do with covetousness? Um, Exodus 20, verse 17, the commandment, the tenth commandment is, thou shalt not covet. And it says here, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, the word for covet in the Hebrew language is the same word for lust or desire. And you see here at this point that we're getting into 
We're getting into the arena of the heart. Unlike any of the other commandments, the other commandments say, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not commit adultery. The confusion in those commandments tends to be that people, like the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' time, focused upon outward conformity without addressing the reality of the heart. Right? And the Tenth Commandment comes to us and it tells us that in fact all the commandments are about what is going on in the heart of sinful people. It's about the fact that out of the heart arises all the things of life. This is why Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it comes the wellspring of life. Out of it comes the actions that you choose to do. And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will bring to fullness the understanding of the Ten Commandments that the people of God Israel should have had. He said, yes, the commandments say you shall not commit adultery, but that's not only about outward conformity, because if you lust after someone else, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Yes, The commandments say you shall not murder. But I tell you, even if you call your brother a fool, even if you have anger in your heart, you've already murdered him in your heart. So the issue is about the heart, the heart of the matter. And so when the Heidelberg Catechism comes in and says, what is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? The answer is that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always, and the two things, hate sin, right, and take pleasure in what is right. This has been a continual theme as we've looked at the commandments because we talked about how the two parts of the Christian life are mortification, the dying away of the old self, right? And vivification, the coming to life of the new life. And so, hating sin is mortification. Continuing to put to death the things in us that, uh, that belong to the old man, the old person. And vivification is the pleasure of the things that are right. The pleasure of the things that conform to God's will for our lives that conform to his word and that conform to the gospel and conform to Jesus Christ, who is the image of the Almighty God. So if there was one thing that we could say about the Ten Commandments, as we look at them, we should be saying what David says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And the reason why we can do this as Christians is because when we are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no fear in letting God, who is with us always, wherever we may go, all the way up to the top of the sky, all the way down to the depths of the grave, He is with us. Where, where, why it's okay for us, why it is a comfort for us, why it is of the motivation of grace for us to say, God, search my heart. Because God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And is making us new by his spirit that he has placed 
in us. The Ten Commandments express that there should not be the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments that arises in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. That's what we call the ideal. That's what we would call the person who is not burdened by the curse and the sinful nature. That's what we would do. In the non-distorted image of God, we would be those who did not have the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments rising in our hearts. And we would always hate sin, take pleasure in what is right. And I'm sure many of you are realizing, though, that that's not our circumstance. That is not where we find ourselves as, as Christians here in the already but the not yet. As Christians here going through suffering and awaiting the future glory, we are still burdened. We are still fighting the world, the flesh, the devil. We're still in a battle. We're still in the midst of being sanctified. And we have not been glorified. So talked about this morning. So this is going to the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter. But let's talk about the small beginning. And when I talk about the small beginning, I'm going to try to give a little bit of a historical context to what is being said here. So the question, of course, then is, for those who are Christians, can we obey these commandments perfectly? Because you're saying the Tenth Commandment is telling us that we're supposed to have perfect obedience, perfect compliance with the commandments, not only outwardly, but inwardly, our hearts, right? And as the Catechism often likes to do, it says no. Can we do this perfectly? No. No. In fact, in this life, even the holiest, even the holiest, have only a small beginning. Paul, speaking to the church of Philippi, says, If anyone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is saying, In the flesh, I have much to boast about. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But Paul says all that fleshly, worldly boasting, he considers it loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The small beginning that we have in this life is not a beginning of our own work and effort. It is the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. You see, this is why it's so important to distinguish between the motivation of guilt and the motivation of grace. Because the motivation of guilt says, oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I do bad things. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better, right? And the motivation of grace says, God, I know I'm a sinner, but you have redeemed me. And I'm not relying on my own effort, my own self. I'm relying upon you and your grace and your goodness to me in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of faith that comes through Christ, Paul says, that's what he wants. That's what he desires. And I don't know about you, but when I first read the Heidelberg Catechism, and we just spent all this time talking about the gratitude of the life of a Christian and the pursuit of growing in godliness and holiness, and you get to question 114, and, and the answer says, In fact, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Maybe you're like, it's kind of disappointing. But I want to bring some context to this, okay? At the time that the Heidelberg Catechism was written, they had, and it still exists today, a rather intricate ranking system of Christians. There were the normal folk. There were the clergy. There were the saints. And the only way that the normal folk would even hope to possibly get into heaven is if the treasury of merit built up by these perfect saints that did all these wonderful things would be filled with all their, their, their unneeded merit. They had so much that it was overflowing. They filled this treasury box with merit. And all the clergy who, who were faithful to God and served God and were separated for God's purpose could do these things. And the nuns and the monks could, could fill all these things up. And then maybe the normal people, they could get out of purgatory a little bit sooner, you know. That, that's, that was what was existing at the time that the Heidelberg Catechism was written. And so here comes the Heidelberg Catechism and says, no, in fact, even those saints that you, that you pray to, those saints that you think are so holier than you are, those saints that you think filled up the treasury of merit for you normal folk, you simple folk who can't even read the scriptures, you simple folk who are dependent upon us and the holiness of other people. In fact, they only had a small beginning of obedience.
And then you remember the words that Paul said to Timothy. The words that are trustworthy words that every Christian should be able to say. This is a trustworthy saying. That Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the chief. Paul the apostle didn't think highly of himself. Paul the writer of the most of most of the New Testament didn't think highly of himself. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles who preached the gospel to most of the known world at the time didn't think highly of himself. He said a trustworthy saying is that every Christian would be able to proclaim I am the chief of sinners. Because it is in knowing your sinfulness that you come to depend less upon yourself and more upon Christ. And that is a small beginning, small beginning of obedience. It's also a constant growth. Paul, he forsook all that he had in the flesh to pursue Christ, right? He said that he lost all things for Christ. But he continues on. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. But in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on. is knowing that you will only have a small beginning of the obedience in this life, something that keeps you from even starting. And the answer to that, according to the Heidelberg Catechism and according to the Word of God, is nevertheless with all seriousness of purpose. They They do begin to live according to all, not some, of God's commandments. And here's the amazing thing about that. It is when you understand the nature of our sinfulness, of our corruption, it's when you understand the gravity of that and the greatness of that, that you see that the small beginning, that you see that with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, is a miraculous work of the grace of God that is so deeply profound we could not even begin to grasp it in this life. It's then when we realize that the small beginning really isn't all that small at all. But our ability by the Spirit of God within us and the grace of God at work within us 
drawing us closer and closer and more and more dependent upon Christ and not ourselves, depending, resting in the righteousness that comes by faith, that we, as Christians, are sanctified. We begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. And we do this pressing on, not on our own strength. We do it because it is God who is working in us to will and to work. We do it because by grace we have been saved this, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God that no man should boast. We have been saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. We press on towards the certain goal, as Paul did in his life. The law of God in revealing our hearts humbles us. It teaches us to not depend upon ourselves and to depend more and more upon Christ. Question 115. No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them to be preached? Why does he want them to be preached? Why does God want the Ten Commandments to be preached if it is a pursuit that cannot be perfected? It's about progress, not perfection. And the funny thing about progress in the Christian life is that progress is hard to see um, from Sunday to Monday. Progress is hard to see when you go to sleep tonight and you wake up the next day and not much has changed. Progress in the Christian life is all about trending up. Many of you maybe today could say, who was I when I was 15? Who am I now? When however old you are, I won't put it up here, okay, to make you feel better. Who was I when I was 15? Who am I now when I'm 30? Am I a different man? Am I and I'm more strongly rooted and grounded in Christ? And the motivation, always grace. And the progress is leading towards a certain goal. 
Why does God want the Ten Commandments preached? First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. This is the humility I'm talking about here. Humility is uh, turning away from self-reliance. To Christ. The more we know about our sin, the more wonderful Christ becomes. The more we look to Him for forgiveness of sins and for righteousness. But second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal perfection. Remember, I said this morning, Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, those who justified, he also glorified. That's what the catechism is talking about when it says perfection. The glorification that we await as we struggle against the world of flesh and the devil every day. We look towards the redemption of our bodies. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, verse 14, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And he says later on, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The certain goal is a certain goal because we know God has promised us we will reach it. We will attain to it. It is always before us as a promise. It is always before us to reach toward. We're not going to find it in this life, but we are, by the grace of God, always in pursuit of it. Always striving after it. Wanting more of Christ and His righteousness. Wanting less of ourselves and our sinfulness. And as the Ten Commandments are preached from this gospel lens, that is what it's supposed to do in us. That is what it's supposed to do in our hearts. It's supposed to tell us that God loves us at our darkest. And that God is pursuing us relentlessly in Christ. And that God, who has started a work in us in Christ Jesus, will continue that work, will bring that work to its end. And that the most important part of our pursuing of that goal is to stop trying to pursue that goal. And instead, let God work in us. Let God conform us more and more to the image of Christ, His Son. The law of God humbles us and leads us to Christ. The law of God shows us the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It shows us that even though God knows our hearts, 
His love for us is not affected. His pursuit of us is relentless. And even as he works a small beginning of that glory in us, as we live our days walking this earth, we are promised. We're promised that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon it that we may know. We may know what you have for us in Christ Jesus. We may look away from ourselves and more eagerly look to Christ. That we may pursue the small beginning of obedience in this life, and as we do so, begin to live according to all, not only some, of your commandments. Help us, Lord, to know your love for us, that we may have a motivation of grace rather than guilt. Help us to hate sin, take pleasure in whatever is right. And help us to believe that you are doing a work in us, conforming us to your image, and that you will bring that work to its completion, that is perfection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.